Amen and amen. Oh, I was falling over. <clears throat> All right. Well, so good to see you this morning. Glad you're doing well. Hope you're doing well. It sounds like you are from the way you're singing. So it's been a blessing. If you would turn to 1 John chapter 4. Again, I want to say thank you uh, to Mark for uh, preaching next week. Um, looking forward to that. Appreciate both Dan and Mark and their ministry here and their uh, giftings and uh, how God uses them to bless us in all kinds of ways. Well, what we want to continue looking at this morning is the topic of loving God. And as I mentioned last week, Augustine or Augustine uh, said, He pleases God whom God pleases. And if you think about that, that kind of raises three basic questions. And depending on how you understand what uh, Augustine is saying there, For one, it raises the question, is God pleased with me? Secondly, am I pleased with God? And then finally, am I living to please God? And so the whole idea of love, as we mentioned last week, can be understood in terms of pleasing God and being pleased with God. And so we want to continue talking about that today in light of this larger section in 1 John, I want to just go ahead and read beginning in verse 7 of, of uh, chapter 4 through verse 12 of chapter 5. And I would encourage you just to think about what God is saying to us through this passage, what the emphasis is in this passage. And uh, if we think just a little bit about it, I think it will be very, very clear that um, God wants us to think deeply and profoundly about love from a number of different angles. And that's what we're trying to do. And so let me begin in verse 7. It says, Beloved, those who are loved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us or to us, That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, those who are loved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. 
we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the life, son, excuse me, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we just pray again that you would help us. There's a lot here in these verses, but we pray that you'd help us to focus on what we need to, help us to see what we need to this morning in light of where we are, in light of our need for you. So please be with us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Obviously, it's a long passage and there's a lot in here, but one of the things that comes uh, across very readily as we think about what's in it is God must want us to think about the issue of love because over 30 different times some form of love is found in the passage that we read. And so the Apostle John, uh, being led by the Spirit of God, repeats over and over and over again the importance of love. And it talks about love in, from different angles, love for God, love for others, God's love for us, all those things. And so obviously, love is crucial. Indeed, Paul could say the the goal of our instruction is love. He could say in 1 Corinthians 13 that the greatest of faith, hope, and love is love. And so we can definitely uh, see that and feel that as we read this passage. You know, if God decided to create um, cars instead of people and apply the same kind of um, vision for life to cars as he did For people, you could argue that the fuel for cars that God made would be faith. That faith is the fuel that is to be put into the car so that the engine can run. But the engine would be love. That the thing that really is meant to uh, propel uh, the car down the road 
is an engine that is functioning appropriately in terms of love. Now, the Lord Jesus, when he came, talked about whitewashed tombs that are beautiful on the outside and yet full of deadness on the inside. And that's a fallen world in which there is no faith and there is no love. It might look or the person might look really beautiful on the outside in all kinds of ways and even aspects of its of that person's life may very be very appealing and very commendable to a certain degree and yet if it was if if we were designed like the car to run on faith and to be driven by love the kind of love that's being described in this passage if that's not taking place then God would say, uh, that car has missed the mark, even if it is, quote, good in many other ways we might try to define goodness. In 1 John 4, 7, um, John begins by saying, Beloved, those who are loved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And the whole passage is an argument to fulfill that one command, let us love one another. Everything else is supporting that call in this passage. And then in the very heart of it, in verse 16, he says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Believing the love of God for us is meant to fuel our love for others. That's why you could argue that love fueled by trust is the vision for life that God has given us. And we've talked about that in so many ways, but I just want to remind us of that in light of the emphasis that we find in this chapter or this passage that we just read. Secondly, um, we need to see and be reminded of the fact that the most important thing in life is loving God. Now, obviously, John is arguing that we love each other, but he's not arguing that that's the most important thing. He's going to draw our attention to what is truly the most important thing, which is the love of God. Because he highlights uh, the love of God in a number of different ways. He talks in verse 20 of chapter 4. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. um, Highlighting that there should be a connection between loving God and, and loving others. In verse 21, this commandment we have from him. That the one who loves God should love his brother also. But then the key verse for me that really helps me is uh, verse 2 of chapter 5 where he says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Now think about the flow there. We know we love people, in this case the children of God, when? When we love God. So if we're not loving God, then we're not loving people, we're not loving the children of God. So that means loving God is actually essential to loving people. Kind of like, again, let's say uh, instead of God creating people, he decided to create houses. And we're trying to relate what uh, we see in the Bible about how we're to live, and we applied it in terms of a house. Uh, the rooms of the house would be the various arenas of life, like your family, like your workplace, uh, like your community, like your church. The rooms would be various arenas in which life takes place. And the furniture in those rooms would be like the deeds of loving service that go on. And the roof of the house would be like the word of God that says, this is what 
uh, love in all these rooms is supposed to look like. But what's the foundation of it all? The foundation of it all is love for God. And the Lord Jesus says, if your foundation's wrong, when the storms of life hit, there's a problem. And especially when you stand in judgment, which is what Dan read about earlier, and give an account of your life to God. If the foundation of your life is not love for God, then you're not ready for judgment day. And so the love of God is the foundation for all of these things. And so let me just highlight some scriptures just very briefly, um, just to remind us of what the Bible says about why, why is love important? Uh, how can we argue that beyond what we see here in 1 John 5, 2? Well, it's obviously commanded. Um, we can see in Matthew 22 where a lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what's the most important thing in life? But he puts it as, what's the greatest commandment? But that's, what is the most important thing in life? And the Lord Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He says, this is the great and foremost commandment, meaning this is the number one thing. The number one thing. Let's say you hired a gardener. And that gardener came over and uh, vacuumed your house and took out your trash and fed your dog. Would he be a good gardener? No, because you didn't hire him to do those things. You hired him to mow your grass. That's the world we live in. There are a lot of people doing a lot of things that we might say looks really good, doesn't it? But is it doing what God created us to do? Are we fulfilling what God created us to do? And Jesus says the number one thing that we've been created to do is love God. Secondly, it's important, the love of God is important, the love for God is important because uh, it divides humanity. If you um, look, you don't have to turn here, but in Exodus 20, I've got this in your notes, you can look at it later. Um, God says this in Exodus 20, um, you shall not worship them or serve them. This is in the midst of the Ten Commandments. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, the Lord himself divides humanity into two groups, those who hate me and those who love me. Um, we often in a sense, put people in categories. Now, that person loves baseball, or that person loves uh, knitting, or that person loves that, or whatever. And we often think in terms of what people love. Well, God thinks in terms of what people love too. Do, do they love him or not? Do they love as he's called us to love? Thirdly, when we think about what the Bible says about Christians, uh, as we looked at Romans 8, Hopefully you caught the fact that Paul defines Christianity in terms of love for God. In Romans 8, 28, a very famous verse that we love to quote says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The implication being, if we're trusting in Jesus, we will also be in the category of those who love God. WWJD, what would Jesus do? He would love God. In every situation, that's what Jesus would do. He would do whatever would please God, and he would seek to be pleased with God in every situation. That's what Jesus would do. Beyond that, we can say that God deserves our love. 
there's one song up here that we sang this morning um, that made the connection between our love for God and what he's done for us. Um, it, may, it basically said, uh, how could I not love you? Because you've rescued me. How could I not love you? And God deserves our love. First uh, John four nineteen in this very passage says, "We love because we love because He first loved us." How often have you thought in your relationships, you know, after all I've done, after all I've done, and they respond in that way? Why do we Why do we think like that? Because we make a connection between our love and expecting love in return, that there is that connection. And we definitely see that in the scriptures. But another reason why love for God, and all this is about why love for God is important, God deserves it, and also we will not love others without loving God. This is kind of coming back to what we highlighted in chapter 5, verse 2. But C.S. Lewis puts it this way in talking about the fact that we need to love God in order to love others. He says, To love you as I should, I must worship God as creator. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest, whoever you love dearly, at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, Second, things are not suppressed, but increased. Okay, so he's defining things in terms of first things and second things. What's the first thing he's talking about? Love for God. That's what Jesus said. This is the first and foremost commandment. If we put first things first, second things follow appropriately. If we put second things first, then nothing is what it should be. Neither love for God nor love for people. And so he goes on to say, you cannot love a fellow creature fully until you love God. So again, the idea is, as it says in 1 John 5, 2, we love the children of God when we love God. So just think about your relationships. Think about those in your life that you want to love and you know you need to love. Are you pursuing love for them by pursuing as the priority your love for God? Or are you putting second things in the place of first things and wondering at the difficulty? It's always difficult because of our sin, but it helps if we have our priorities in order. Lastly, why is love for God so important? We become like what we love. Uh, Someone has said, every man becomes the image of the God he adores or the God he loves. Every man becomes that image. You can see that sort of thing in Psalm 115, where it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Those who make them, these idols will become like them. You become what you worship. You become what you adore. You become what you love. And so, no matter how you approach it, love for God is crucial. Love for God is foundational. Love for God is so very, very important. 
And yet it's very, very easy to neglect the love of God. Just ask the Pharisees who are very concerned about obedience in one sense, but neglected the love of God. And so we should pray, God, help me not to be like that. Help me not to neglect the love of you as the priority in my life. Which brings us to point number three, which is the whole idea of how do we, in a sense, um, summarize what love for God is. We talked uh, last week about all the various ways in which the Bible talks about love for God, seeking God, desiring God, uh, clinging to God, holding on to God, all kinds of ways in which love for God is described in the Bible. And we settled on this statement as being one way to talk about uh, what's at the heart of loving God, and that's being pleased with God above all and living to please God above all. Um, you can see this in this passage in First John in verse 5 where it talks about loving the Father. Um, I believe that goes beyond just the idea of obedience, but it goes to the, the heart of a relationship. Uh, the whole idea of a father is the idea of a relationship of love, and therefore to love a father is to love the heart behind what that father uh, gives you or command you to do and then there is that aspect of obedience to him both being pleased with him as my father and living to please him because i am pleased with him as my father but what i wanted to do is um highlight some things that john owen talks about in his book um, on uh, communion with god um, and the lord jesus and the holy spirit he has this book where he talks about how to commune with each of the three persons of the trinity and he talks about uh, contrasts between um, God's love for us and our love for God. And he talks about how it's similar, the two loves, and how they're different. And hopefully this will be helpful in us thinking about loving God ourselves and also hopefully being encouraged, again, with how much God loves us. And the first thing is to think in terms of um, a wedded love that God's love for us and our love for God both should be seen in terms of a wedded love, in terms of marriage love, which we're celebrating this week very appropriately. Um, And the question would be, do you think about love for God and his love for you in marriage terms? Um, Just a reminder of the traditional wedding vow goes something like this. I so-and-so take you, so-and-so to be my wedded wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, forsaking all others till death do us part. There's so much talk in the Bible about God and Israel and their their, um, marriage, so to speak, and Christ and the church, and that marriage that's pictured... uh, in the marriages that we have, it's very, very clear that God wants us to think about uh, his love for us and our love for him in terms of the marriage relationship. And um, so we could ask the question, why do Christians love God? And we could answer by saying, because we've stopped dating. We have found in God all we need and desire. We're not dating anymore. If you're still dating, then you haven't found in God what you're looking for. Um, the way that uh, Owen, John Owen, talks about this he sa- is he says, 
Um, in light of Zephaniah 3.17, Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He's talking about God's love for us. A victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And the first thing he does is he focuses on that phrase, he will be quiet in his love. What does that mean? Well, he says it means he will not remove his love and he will not seek another object for it. His love will make its abode forever with the one on whom it has become fixed. Then he goes on to talk about the phrase, um, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. He says, he rejoices with singing as one who is fully satisfied in that object he has fixed his love on. God's love for us is a love that says, I found in you all that I want. Now we know that's connected to Jesus and we're going to end there today. But that's a very real statement. God says, I'm not moving on from you. I'm not divorcing you. All those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus, um, I will not forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, uh, no matter what happens. And Psalm 73 actually is the flip side of that for us, which says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Like I said last week, um, our love for God isn't simply a matter of uh, our feelings. Feelings come and go. The question is whether or not we have found in God what we're looking for, whether or not we found in Jesus what we're looking for, that we have said, when Jesus says to us, are you going to leave me too? And we say, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. It's not just about how we feel. As much as we want um, those affections, it goes far beyond that. And John Owen could say, In light of our love for God, the soul gathers itself from all its wanderings, from all its other loves, to rest in God alone, to satiate and content itself in him, choosing the Father for its present and eternal rest. And this is also done with delight. He says we prefer God to everything else. That's what it means to have a wedded love. But there's also an aspect of our love uh, between us and God that's a because love. And we've already touched on this a little bit, but I want to highlight it again. Um, Do you think about your love for God in terms of because? And hopefully you do, because the the Bible talks in those ways. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Psalm 116, verse 1 says, I love because he hears my voice. In my supplications, uh, God answers my prayer, so I love him. It's a because kind of dynamic there. And it's helpful to ask the question, why do Christians love God? Because we can count our many blessings one by one. We count our many blessings. We see God answering our prayers. We see God loving us. And we respond in 
love. In this sense, we could say, um, John Owen would say, the love of the Father is a prior love. Our love is a consequential love, are the words he uses. Um, You might say that God's love for us is uncaused. Our love for him has a cause. Uh, God doesn't look at us and say, oh, you guys are so wonderful and you've done so much for me, I'm going to love you. But we look at God and say, you're so wonderful and you've done so much for me, I love you. That is the dynamic. It's kind of like the dynamic between a parent and a child. You have a baby. What does that baby do for you? Baby doesn't do anything for you, but what do you do for that baby? Everything. Your love for the baby is prior to that baby's love for you. Now, they grow up and they mature, and there's, there's some response there, obviously. But the picture that we find here is like the parent-child, and that's why Owen could say the father loves the child even when the child does not know the father, much less love him. It not only precedes our love, the love of the father, but it also precedes anything in us that is lovely. But for us, he says, you don't love God for nothing. And God doesn't ask you to love him for nothing. It's the way he puts it. He says, God must be revealed to us as lovely and desirable, as a suitable object for our soul to rest upon before we can bear any love to him. In this sense, the saints do not love God for nothing, but for his excellence, loveliness, and desirability. We don't love God for nothing. We have good reasons as Christians to love God. I love the Lord because, I love the Lord because, I love the Lord because. That is the refrain of the saints. We go on to talk about um, a right kind of love. And, and we may ask the question, do you think about love for God in terms of it being the right thing to do? We live in a society that hardly ever uses those, uh, that terminology anymore. It's the right thing to do. Why? Because we don't believe there's a right and wrong anymore. It's just about what I want to do and, and what I think should happen. And yet Christians love God because it's the right thing to do. John Owen could say the love of God is a love of bounty, God's love for us. Our love to him is a love of duty. Now, in our day and time, even as Christians, we don't like the word duty, but the Puritans use the word duty all the time. And they didn't see it as a dirty word. It, it was something that reflected a, a legitimate obligation in light of who we are and in light of who God is. I mean, it's kind of like Bob Dylan, you know, present day Puritan, I guess. You know, he said, but you gotta have to, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's the idea that, that we were created to fulfill an obligation and in rebellion, we will serve somebody, even if it's the devil, or we'll serve the Lord, because in all kinds of ways, the Bible talks about the fact that we are in a master-slave relationship. We're either in a master-slave relationship in terms of God or in terms of the devil. And if you read your Bible, you can see that reflected in so many ways. And yet, God is not, not obligated to us. God loves freely we love in a sense because it's required, but that's not a bad thing. To do things, something because it's required doesn't mean it's a, it's a bad thing to do it. Um, it's sort of like um, in terms of God's love for us in Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, God talks about himself as the fountain of living waters. 
But that's how we should picture God as an overflowing fountain. And John Owen says, The love of God for us is the love of a spring or a fountain that always communicates. It is a love from which proceeds everything that is lovely. It infuses into and creates goodness in those who are loved. One who loves will do good to those he loves as he is able. The idea of a fountain is freedom. That fountain is just bubbling over because that's what's in the fountain. It's bubbling over with love and that's what's happening. God is loving us because that's God. Not because there's anything in us or any obligation in God to love us. But we're different. Um, The Bible says in Malachi chapter 1, A son son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I, God speaking, if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my respect? There's a a legitimate uh, obligation there between a a son and a father and a, a master and a slave. And John Owen could say, God calls the love that is due to him as a father honor. It is a deserved act of duty. So in one sense... We're to love God because it's the right thing to do in light of the free love that he's given us in, in light of who he is and who we are. But the reality is our love for God is an up and down kind of thing. And this is important to understand lest we feel condemnation in some sense. Um, you need to think about your love as an ocean tide. It comes in and comes out. It comes in and goes out. Uh, John Owen would say the love of God for us is equal, constant, and incapable of augmentation or diminution, which means it can't be changed and it can't go less. But he says our love is unequal, increasing, waning, growing, and declining. Why is that? So he says God's love is like God, unchanging. Our love is like us, always changing. He says God's love is like the sun, shining, brilliant, powerful, always pumping out its rays in full force, even though we might not see it because of the clouds in our lives. Yet he says, our life is like the moon. Sometimes we're like the harvest moon, and sometimes we're just that little sliver of light. Our love is bold and beautiful sometimes, and sometimes it's almost imperceptible in terms of how we feel and maybe in terms of what people see coming out of us. And so he says the love of the Father um, is always the same. It cannot be heightened by any act of ours nor lessened by anything in us. But he says our love to God ebbs and flows, wanes and waxes. We lose our first love and we grow again in love. Scarcely a day stands still. What poor creatures we are. So he's basically reflecting what it says in Micah 7 where it says, Who is a God like you? who delights in unchanging love. But for us, he says, it's like Revelation 2, I have this against you that you have left your first love. We leave, we come back. Our love for God is like a tide, but his is not like that. He says it may appear that way. It may appear like God's love for us is a tide going out and a tide coming in. He says that's because, it's interesting how he puts this. He says, um, with regard to our sense of God's love for us, even though it doesn't ever change, it's as powerful as the sun all the time, he says he gives us a sense of his love, manifesting it to us. This varies and changes, sometimes more, sometimes less. 
Now he shines his face upon us. Another time he hides it as necessary for our own profit. Our father will not always chide us or we may be cast down. He doesn't always smile or we may be full and neglect him. Yet his love in itself remains the same. So our experience of God's love, our sense of God's love may feel like the tide coming in or the tide going out. But the reality is it's always the same. He just orders our experience in light of what is really needful for us. The reality for us is our love for him is like the tide, in and out, and yet his love for us does not change. Um, We could also say that uh, our relationship with God is a channeled kind of love. And what I mean by that is, um, do you ever feel like your love for God needs some help? The reality is, yes, in light of what we just said, uh, how our, our love for God waxes and wanes and comes in and goes out and goes up and go, goes down. The reality is we need some help. Um, the channel through which our love has to go to God is Jesus. And the channel through which God's love for us comes is Jesus. Uh, it says at the end of Romans 8, verse 39, it talks about the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's talking about God's love for his children that's in relationship with Jesus. In Hebrews, though, it says in verse 25 of Hebrews 7, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. So this is what John Owen says in light of those two kinds of truths. He says, Jesus is the treasury in which the Father disposes all his riches of grace. He's saying it's in Jesus that all the riches that God has to pour out on us is going to be found. It's not outside of Jesus. If we're outside of a union with Christ, we're outside of a union with Jesus, we don't get all the riches of God's love. But he also says that Christ is the priest whose hand we put all the offerings that we return to the Father. So that as... God loves us. He loves us through Jesus and in Jesus. And as we respond in love to God, we hand our imperfect, waxing and waning love back to God in the name of Jesus. And Jesus makes it acceptable. Jesus makes it pleasing to God. Well, let me wrap up with some application. Um, The fourth point is about growing in love for God. If if love for God is so very important and God um, calls us to love him, then how can we do that? Uh, Especially when we're called to love someone who's greater than we are and is in authority over us. And that's the reality of the situation. Jesus and God is not on our level, but we're loving someone who is much, much greater than we are and to whom we must give an account. And so when you think about relationships, um, there's certain things that are helpful to keep in mind is in terms of growing in love for someone. Number one, are you enemies? Or have you been reconciled? Number two, are you investing time and effort in that relationship? Number three, do you know them well enough to know that they love you? Number four, have you come to depend on them and to see them as dependable. 
And then finally, are you able to follow what they say and see the benefit of it? Now, this is all kind of in relationship to someone who's greater than we are and is in authority over us, especially. This passage talks about the fact that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why? Because we need to be reconciled to God. And that's the beginning point for loving God and growing in love for God is making sure we've been reconciled. Um, And so the first idea or the first thing the Bible calls us to if we want to really love God is we have to be reconciled to God. We have to turn from our sin, repent, and entrust ourselves to Jesus, believe in Jesus, and we can at that point begin growing in love for God. Romans 5 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, we have to get married before we can grow in love to the one we're married to. And getting married means I forsake all others. I turn from the worship and love of all others, and I entrust myself to King Jesus. And that's when we begin our trek of growth in love for God. After that, we have just the, the commitment to pursue love for God, uh, to invest time and energy in that. How are we going to love or grow in love for someone if we don't invest any time or effort in that relationship? That's why the Bible talks about in Second Thessalonians 3, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. In Jude chapter 1, keep yourselves in the love of God. In various ways, the Bible calls us to pursue love for God. And then thirdly, we do that by actually focusing on God, the one we're called to love, and his love for us. We ponder uh, God's word. We, we seek to get to know the heart of God. We, we have to get to know that he really loves us. It's believing that he loves us that is going to move us to love him in return. And so, like R.C. Sproul said, if you want to love God more, we have to know him more deeply. And Ephesians 3, that's why Paul could say that he prays for the Ephesians, that they might know the length and width and height and depth of the love of Christ, that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. So we ponder God's word, we pursue a greater knowledge and belief of the love of God. And we pray, we pray and we seek to depend on him. Again, we're talking about someone who's greater than we are, and is in authority over us. And how do you grow in love for someone in authority over you? And someone you're dependent on. You depend on them. And you see them come through. That's why God says, pray to me. Call to me and I will answer you. I will deliver you. I will rescue you and you will honor me. And so we grow in love as we ask God for what we need. And we seek him for what our heart desires And we find him to be faithful. And we say, I love the Lord because he hears my supplications. That is the way it works. And then finally, we practice obedience. Again, someone, how do we love someone that's in authority over us, who's telling us what to do? We We follow what they tell us to do. and We find out that, wow, this person is really wise. This person is really good. This person really knows what's going on in relationships, knows really 
uh, how I'm to live my life. We grow in love for someone in authority over us by following their directions and finding out in experience just how good and wise they really are. Read Psalm 119. That's the psalmist rejoicing in God's word and, and how wonderful it is when we follow his word. Let me just close with this, with the couple minutes I have left. This last thing is important, and we'll talk more about this as we go on in a couple weeks. In Christ, meaning as a Christian, someone who's repented of their sins and entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus, I need to believe and know and meditate on the fact that God is pleased with me and I am pleased with God, so I live to please God. That's the Christian life. Knowing that God is pleased with me, I'm pleased with God, and I live to please God. You can see that kind of dynamic in the uh, testimony of Martin Luther, which we referenced last week. Martin Luther talked about the fact that he tried very, very hard to earn God's favor, and yet people would ask him, Martin, do you love God? He says, no, I hate God. Because Basically because I can't find a way to satisfy him. And then he sees in the gospel how Jesus has satisfied the Father. And that simply by grace through faith, God forgives us and receives us and blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And at that point, he goes from saying, you know, just longing that God was not angry with him to realizing that through faith in Christ, God was not angry with him. And the hatred that he had for God was transformed into a love for God. And he goes on from there and he says, I would rather obey than work miracles, meaning my life is about obedience. So he went from hating God to loving God, being pleased with God, knowing that God was pleased with him because of Jesus and what Jesus has done. And he lived to please God. In Luke 2, it says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Who is God pleased with? Well, if I reference John Owen one more time as we wrap up. In commenting on Zephaniah 3.17, uh, where it says, God will be silent because of his love. He will uh, rest in his love over his children, his people. He says this, To rest with contentment is expressed by being silent. That is, it is done without whining and without complaint. God does this because of his own love. It is so full, complete, and absolute that it will not allow him to complain of anything in those whom he loves. God does not whine over you. He rejoices over you. He is pleased with you. Do you believe that? We think God is just continually walking around whining about how we don't live up to everything we're supposed to live up to. And the Bible actually says, no, God doesn't whine over his children. Now, does that mean that there's He's never grieved. I mean, it says in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is grieved when we're not loving each other like we should be. It doesn't mean that there isn't 
a complex dynamic going on there. But it is fundamental to our Christian life to believe that the love of God for us as his children, through our faith in Jesus, is a love in which God does not whine. He rejoices. He is content with us. He is pleased with us. And why? Because he looks at his son and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And everyone who is in Jesus, God is well pleased with because of Jesus. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate in a few minutes. Let's pray. Father, we ask for help in really thinking about these things and really believing. We believe, help our unbelief. Help us to see in fresh and new ways that you are pleased with us. You rejoice over us. You are at rest, not wanting to move on from us. And for all those who are in Christ by faith, that that is true. And that as a result, we can be pleased with you. We can rejoice in your love for us. We can rest in your love for us. We can know that in you we have everything that we need and desire. And may that motivate us to live to please you. Not that we might be accepted, but because we might actually experience more and more of your love for us and might express that love to others. So, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that's so richly expressed in this passage and so many other passages. Please grow our faith, grow our love, and may we rest in your love for us in greater, deeper, richer ways. Please prepare us now to celebrate the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.